Well, it was bound to happen sometime. Welcome to Sisterly History Mysteries. And we were already recording and we had to start over because something happened and I don't know what it was. Guys, I'm real... We're grumpy now. (laughs) We were just recording for like 20 minutes. And uh, I check my phone. I'm like, I'm like, well, we're into the story now. I'm going to make sure everything's going great with the recording. And, uh, oh, it is no longer doing the thing that I really needed to do. I'm really glad you checked, though. Imagine if we did the whole thing. Oh my god, can you fucking imagine? I'm just gonna check every, like, two seconds now. I thought that happened last- I thought that happened on our episode when we had Casey on. I know, but that's- I really thought Once at the you end. stopped, it wasn't there. This is, like, you know how the red bar at the top? Oh, yeah. You know, or, like, even if you press the, the home button, you can see that it's- yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's um, I'm Megan- I'm Carly, and I'm mad. I now don't want to do anything we just talked about again. Well, I want to talk about Oddfellows, because that's relevant to our podcast. Oh, yeah. So briefly, go on. Tell us what you did today. That's not today, Megan. No, I'm just saying oh. we like to talk about what we did on the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, so we were talking about how we were both really sleepy today. Mm-hmm. Um... So, my boyfriend spent the night last night, and I'm tired. Megan's tired because she was out partying and being crazy, doing drugs, stealing cars. I didn't do drugs. I only stole three cars. Never been to jail. Murdering people. Or uvu jobber. (laughs) Um, So, that's why she's tired. Um, For me... So, my boyfriend came over last night, and his name is Mark. And he gets here at about 11 because he had a work function. So then I was like, so he comes over and I'm like, hey, babe, you want to watch a movie? There's a scary movie on Netflix I want to watch. And then he's like, I'm just good to go to bed. So then at 1230, he's like, how about we get Uber Eats? And I was like, I guess. And then so we get Uber Eats and he's like, hey, how about we watch that movie? And I was like, no, it's one o'clock. And he's like, well, now I feel awake. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so we get through part of the movie. Then we go to bed. And then at five in the morning. So he's been having these back problems. And mm. he wakes up like in a lot of pain. And it was kind of scary. Oh my god. Like spasms? No, it just was. It's like in two different spots. Like on his back and then his ribs. I hope he doesn't care that you're sharing his medical problems on our podcast. Uh, you know. <laughs> Um, but it was scary. So now I'm sleeping and I'm but excited I'm, to take a nap after this. I'm excited to go to bed after this. Uh, so yeah, we went out for our anniversary last night. Megan and, and... her boyfriend, Billy. Yeah. He was a sweet little egg. I love him. He's a good, good guy. Um, and we had falafel at this BYOB Mediterranean restaurant. It was amazing. Um, I would happily go back. And then we went out for drinks in a bar that we really like, even though it's really touristy and expensive. (laughs) And just listened to Irish music. And then this morning I had to get up early for a rehearsal. And then we went to a camogie game, which, as I previously explained to Carly, and I just don't want to get into that much detail again, you can Google it. I'm sorry, we're so grumpy. Not grumpy, just like... Before, our conversation was just so natural and organic. 
And now we're trying to rec- recreate what we already which said, we which is just do, awkward and weird. But... I, but, like, I do like to tell about our day. So, yeah. camogie is is a Irish sport. It's kind of like if football slash soccer and also American football and also field hockey and lacrosse all had a baby. A baby. Um, and Galway beat Kilkenny. And it was great. Yeah. And, yeah. And now we're going to get a pizza soon. I like that. Um, yeah, he's a good guy. I'm glad we're oh, together. when I... And was that... I hope we so stay. I was at home a week ago. And I f- sleep in your room at Mom's because that is where the cat lives. Yeah. Because she likes the basement and also our mom is deathly allergic to her. And I found a Polaroid in your room. And so I took these pictures of the cat. Oh, yeah. I've previously taken a picture of her that didn't turn out well. Yeah. But I'm glad that those did turn so out well. So now I have them here. Um, um, so I was going to say a couple things I've listened to. I really enjoyed Finn Dwyer's Irish History Podcast episode on Jack the Ripper. He interviewed a woman. Oh, I should remember her name. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, who wrote a book about Jack the Ripper, specifically focusing through the lens of the victims, because her argument is, like, Ripperology sort of uh, glorifies him and doesn't pay enough attention to the women he, like, horrifically robbed of their lives. Which is and probably fair. And she is kind of making... The... Yeah. Not that he horrifically yeah. robbed the women of their lives. That I don't like. That's definitely fair. No. Um... No, fair as in, like, yeah, no one's arguing that that point. emphasis is placed on the perpetrator more than the... Oh, my God, I totally forgot to tell you about something I've been watching, so continue, and then... Oh, okay. Um, So, yeah, she just basically is kind of making the argument that people just assume these women were prostitutes, and um, there's one that definitely was, as in we know about her life, but the other ones... People just make that assumption, and there's really no evidence to suggest that, and she's actually arguing that... She thinks that they were killed in their sleep because they were known to be rough sleepers, as in to sleep on the streets. And um, actually, I think like two days after one of the victims was found, there was another man sleeping rough in that right, same spot. Right, because Whitechapel, so, like, where these murders happen, I mean, it's similar to what we're rough. talking about, you know, in all of Russia, you know, in the 1900s when everyone is living in poverty. I mean, there's, I mean... Yeah. In Whitechapel, in that district, everyone is so poor. And there was there were these lodgings that, I mean, they were totally packed. It was a horrible place to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I thought that podcast was really interesting. Um, apologies that I don't have the woman's name ready. I will put it in the show notes because that's important. And the other thing I listened to was a podcast called Monarchs and Malarkey. They did an episode on Richard III, which, as you guys know, I'm obsessed with Richard III. So if you couldn't get enough of it in our episode, which is episode three, and if you haven't listened to it, who are you? Uh, If I may say so, I did a great job. And if (laughs) you don't think I did a great job or want more information or just like Richard III, listen to Monarchs and Malarkey. Good. Yep. Yeah. What did you want to say? I can't believe I forgot to mention this because I've been so excited to talk to you about this. Have you... Oh, it, I know what it is. Is it a book? No. What do you think it is? Oh. Stay sexy. Oh, that's you. Yes, of course. Um, but no, have you heard of Mindhunter on Netflix? Mm-hmm. Mm, I've heard of it. So, I think it's gaining more popularity right now because season two just came out, so I decided mm-hmm. to watch it. Mm-hmm. It is so 
fucking good, Megan. So it's inspired by a true story of how the FBI developed the Behavioral Science Unit. Oh, maybe I have so goddamn good. Jonathan Groff is in it. Okay. Um, he was King George in Hamilton, and he was also on Glee. Mm-hmm. For you Gleeks out there. God, remember Glee? God, I try not to. <laughs> Tyler watches it all the time, and I'll come out in the living room, and he'll be like, watching Glee. He did. He was doing it this morning. I was like, this is madness. Um, but so what they do on this show, the premise is that they go to these different towns, uh, to interview serial killers, and then while they're there, they do these. Other cases, like, um, while they're in the towns, they'll do, like, the police will consult them and they'll be like, we have this murder that happened and we need your help solving it. So then they also have this fictional crime-solving, like, criminal minds kind of thing going. Um, Mm -hmm. It's truly incredible. Thing was, the first season was really not diverse, uh, but that didn't Mm. prove a lot in the second season. The main focus of the second season was the Atlanta child killer or the Atlanta monster. Um, oh my god, Megan, it's so good. Oh, god. oh, there's this guy that plays Ed Kemper. I can't, I like can't even put into words. It's incredible. The performances are so good. And like the quality of everything is incredible. You have to watch it. Okay. It's up there like oh, top nice. five TV shows of all time for me. Wow, that's really good. Yeah. Cool. And then, obviously, there's the other big thing that we need to talk about. Oddfellows? Yeah. Yeah, so, as I mentioned, I went home a week ago, and I decided to mosey on down to the Oddfellows' <sighs> home while I was in the area with my mom. Um, so, it's now a winery. So, we went down there and got some wine, and they were like, yeah, you can just go, like, look around the building, walk around outside. So we went and did that, and it was really cool and really creepy, and there are a lot of buildings on the property that are abandoned, and you're Mm. not allowed to go inside them, and they have signs and surveillance cameras everywhere. But one building we went up to, and the door was totally broken in. You could just walk right in there, and I couldn't do it because I didn't want to go to jail, but it was so tempting. Oh my god, it's incredible down there. That's really cool. Yeah. I'm glad you got to go. Um, if you guys follow us on Instagram, you might have seen it on our stories. And if you didn't, then too bad because they disappear after 24 hours. I might put it as a highlight. Yeah, because I still have pictures. And I that. actually have more pictures than what I sent you. I got to see George. Oh, yeah. Make it a highlight. Yeah. Yeah, she saw George in the flesh. Well, the opposite Ooh. flesh. Haha, <laughs> I didn't even mean to say that. <laughs> um, in the bone. What if mm-hmm. that's what we said? In the bone. Um, yeah, that's really oh cool. And there was a sign by him that was just basically like, a lot of the older Oddfellows lodges will have skeletons in them. Mm-hmm. That's just a thing that they do. So they're, really yeah. They do weddings down there, too. Really beautiful. Should I get married there? Yeah, I'll get married there. Edit that out. <laughs> what? <laughs> Nothing. Um, anything else we need to tell the squad? Well, I think we just about recapped everything we previously said. Man. I'm checking, like, every two seconds to make sure I'm I know, I, I don't know what happened. Technology is not our friend. We also just had a scare about the audio from the Casey episode. Yeah. But I think that's all fine now. Maybe we're haunted. I totally have a ghost in my apartment, by the way. Hmm. Have I told you? 
No. We're only at 12 minutes, so I'll go ahead and tell the story since we we're so much more concise this time around. But um, Tell it quickly because after we record, I'm going to eat pizza, so... Oh, fuck. Okay, so Devin and I, Tyler was doing laundry, and I have a, we both have a habit of leaving our shit in the dryer for too long, so I'm like, Rude. I realize he's doing laundry, I'm like, fuck, I have to get my stuff out of the dryer, so I go to get it, and he's already drying his shit, so I've missed my chance, because I left uh, kitchen towels in there that I cleaned, mm-hmm. so I was like, fuck, I left them in there, and he had to take them out himself, so I went out mm-hmm. in the living room, and I was like, hey, I'm sorry, I left my kitchen towels in the dryer and that you had to take them out and he was like mm, it was empty when I got there so I, I looked in to see if they were on the floor in the bathroom because that's where our laundry is and I opened the linen closet and they're folded in half on top of the bath towel so you know like when you fold like a hand towel you fold it into like a little square thing mm-hmm. but they were just folded in half and I hadn't done it, and he hadn't done it, and we have a ghost. You have a very tidy ghost, then. Yes. Weird. Spooky. Spooky. Tell me about the Romanovs. Okay. So we are on part two of the Romanovs, and this is going to be <laughs> at least a three-parter. Unfortunately, I couldn't finish it up. Don't be unfortunately... It's great. Oh my god, and on top of having to re-record this, I lost all of my notes, so I had to retype everything and <laughs> finish my research well today. Um, but I had really a lot of fun figuring all this out, um, and we did not finish today. So it'll be probably a three, maybe four-parter, but I'm hoping to finish it up in three parts. There's some stuff in the book that I'm starting to realize, like, for our purposes, it's okay to... You know, just include what we feel is necessary to do a oh, nice, fairly concise, like, I I mean, I don't want to rehash everything in her book, you know. Um, I mean, I basically skipped the entire Wars of the Roses when I did Richard III, mm-hmm. so. So, let's get into it. Yay! So when we left off last week, or two weeks ago? Yeah. Alexander Nicholas II had finally had a son after having four daughters in a row, when you're in a monarchy, not <laughs> ideal. But despite all their trying and the fact that something is finally looking up, they have a son. As we talked about last time, not everything was going as they'd expected. And that's an understatement. So not only was Alexi born with a potentially life-threatening disease called hemophilia, but the citizens of Russia... He loved blood. Yes. <laughs> no, he had uh, thin blood that leaks out of everywhere. Um, mm. So basically, as a reminder, if he gets, like, a little cut, it just won't stop bleeding because his blood yeah. clotting factors don't work. Mm. Um, so on top of that, which sucks, uh, the citizens of Russia were going growing extremely antsy. So this was actually something I misspoke about last time, and I learned that through continuing my research. Um, so last time I was talking about how all the peasants were getting really pissed at Nicholas II, but, uh, in part two of her book, Fleming actually clarifies that even though Nicholas II was doing a shitty job of running the empire and ran an administration with a complete lack of empathy for the poor and impoverished, um, (laughs) which was the majority of the Russian population, the peasants aren't actually inclined to blame the Tsar himself. So Mm. while they understood that his administration was shit and had a complete lack of empathy for the poor and the impoverished, 
no one blames him because the Tsar is the closest thing on Earth to God. So they go ahead and they blame his ministers, his wife, the other officials, anyone mm. but the Tsar. That's so stupid. <laughs> because to them, he Nicholas lives so close to heaven, you know, he's ordained by God, that he just isn't aware of what's happening below him. So for them, it's like it's not really his fault. He just doesn't understand the horrible conditions in which they're having to work and live. And his ministers are at fault because they're not. That doesn't make sense. Uh, I can follow that line of thinking. No, I think if you think that someone is God incarnated on earth, surely they would definitely know about your suffering because God's supposed to know everything. But also, how can you say that he's incompetent if he's God? They're not. That's the thing. They don't think he's incompetent. Mm. We think he's incompetent looking back. So Yeah, but if they think that he just doesn't understand their problems, they think God doesn't understand their problems? Well, I I see what you're saying, but I think it's that they think he's so much higher and better than they are that Mm. it's not, like, it's their job to bring it to him because he just doesn't see it. Okay. Look, it's flawed logic, Mm. but I I can follow it, you. you know? I get you. So they actually think of him as a sort of divine father figure. So they're like, yeah, once we show him how things are going down here on Earth, he'll get it and he'll fix things. Because he's like an in-between kind of guy. He's like in-between heaven and Earth. Yes. I I also wonder if it's a situation where maybe he's dealing with, like, God stuff and, like, heaven stuff. Mm. Mm. Maybe. Well, trust me, that line of thinking isn't going to be around for very much longer. So, fear ye not. (laughs) Now, around 1905, something really remarkable happens within the massive community of the villagers and the workers and the peasants. They teach themselves how to read. (gasps) After a work shift that would span the whole day, one peasant recalls going home and fighting against the inclination to fall asleep so he can stay up and read a book. I don't know how they did it, but it's pretty amazing. I mean, they taught themselves. They were so persistent and needed something to live for that by 1905, six out of seven peasants in Moscow were literate, which was an increase in 20% in the last few years. That's so huge. That's so like, rad. Just societally. That's so that fucking rad. Everything. They were like, everything sucks and they can't think for themselves. They don't have free speech and they have this as a way to like grow as people and in their intellect yeah so this is really really helpful because these people are going through a really hard time you know the russian empire is only good for the top 1.5 percent so these villagers and peasants and workers the working class these people have garnered all by themselves a level of intelligence and understanding that they totally deserve but but that they didn't have access to because they don't have public education which obviously is no fault of their own So the wealthy could be educated because they could afford tutors, but the poor obviously couldn't. So now that they've taught themselves how to read, they can wrap their minds around the fact that they deserve a government that is inclusive of all their needs. To sum this up in really simple terms, one peasant profoundly said, books taught me how to think. Hmm. So they they gain this amount of, this level of intelligence and they're like, oh... You know, mm-hmm. like, there's a whole other way that we can do things. There's a whole other, there's a whole other level of living and quality of life that we deserve. Now, now they can see that they can do something about. Yeah. Um. So one thing that's important to note 
a lot of political works were censored. So I wonder if they had access to that sort of thing, if the coming revolution would have changed at all. Um, but I don't know. I mean, ultimately, again, it taught them how to think, and now they were going to take matters into their own hands. That's probably really bad for the czar. <laughs> like, it's amazing. It's a really good yeah. thing. Not if you're Nikki. <laughs> so now they're envisioning a better Russia, a better government. They're going to take their demands to the czar and be like, this is what's going on. Here's what needs to change. Mm-hmm. So led by a young priest named Father Gapon. That sounds French to me. Mm-hmm. Gapon. Yeah, it does. Uh, so the peasants decided that they could write up their own basic, um, a petition. I wrote treaty, but it's, it's a petition. Um, and they would bring it to the czar, and they'd be like, Hi, can you please make these things happen for us? So what they wanted was an eight-hour workday, which they didn't mm-hmm. have because they had to work constantly, and even them, most of them were still living in unaccept- unacceptable conditions. They wanted yeah. a living wage affordable housing, mm-hmm. and a public education system. Damn, we really haven't moved on from this. <laughs> so on January 21st, 1905, Gapon went to the Winter Palace, where he informed the guards that the following day he wanted to meet with the Tsar alongside a group of Russian people so they could peacefully proceed and read him their petition. Mm-hmm. The event would be known later... As Bloody Sunday. That's not good. Don't sound great. Mm. So the following day, Gepon led 120,000 peasants who all marched peacefully to the Winter Palace. But when they were met by the guards, they pushed forward, fearing that they would be late to their meeting with the Tsar. <laughs> but the guards had neglected to inform them that the Tsar wasn't even at the Winter Palace. He was at Tsar's village, some like 15 miles away or something. Did you guys see the pictures of Zara's Village? Can listeners? you fucking because, believe? Like, really go to our Instagram and check that out. That would have been the post from episode eight, seven, eight. Yeah, check it out. It's. I also wanted silly, to post a picture of the beautiful. elephant because they had an elephant there, but I was like, "This isn't what's important here in this story." I'll post. But it, it is pretty we'll interesting. I mean, when you're considering that level of wealth, they had a pet elephant that had his own little mm. palace. Um, in the Tsar's village. Yeah, it's just, I mean, a massive, like, oh my god, you get, it's insane. So, as the villagers pressed forward, the guards opened fire. Chillingly, in this section of her book, Fleming writes that in, in a stunning moment of realization and epiphany that this idea of Father Tsar is a lie, one peasant exclaimed, the Tsar will not help us, to which another villager replied, and we will have no czar. <gasps> I have to... What? A, that's so cinematic. It's so dark and kind of badass. Um, and, like, definitive. I mean, I have to wonder if this is the moment, if there's any one moment you can pin down that the people really definitively turn on Nicholas. Because I thought initially, the last time we recorded and talked about this, that this is more of a slow decline, a gradual, like, fall from grace. But yesterday, the people believed that if they could reach him, everything would be fine. But now they realize that he's just not allowing himself to be reached. And from... Do you think it really happened that way, though? Like, 
Do you think that's a legend mm-hmm. that one person said the czar will not help us and that somebody else said then we will have no czar? Like, that seems like sort of a summary of the events rather than necessarily something that actually happened. Apparently that's something that was said while the massacre was happening. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, I believe you, but it is it is very, like, it could be a line from a movie. Mm-hmm. It could be the tagline of a movie. Yeah. Like, a movie about the Russian yeah. rebellion, and the tagline is, oh, the the title is Revolution, and then on the poster it says, if the czar won't help them, they have will have no czar. czar. Let's make that movie. <laughs> okay. okay. I'll be the elephant. All right, good talk. <laughs> uh... So, yeah, basically, they realize now that he's just not allowing himself to be reached and accessed by the people who need him. So, I think that this is, like, a really pivotal moment of understanding and, like, oh, fuck, we, what, you know, what we were taught to believe about our leader is actually, like, not reality at all. Yeah. So, okay. Now we gotta talk about body count, unfortunately. Um, in such a thick crowd of 120,000 villagers, the guards managed to shoot and kill 200 men, women, and children, and up to 800 were injured. Oh my god. Which, in the scheme of 120,000, I was like, initially that doesn't seem too much, but like, think of like, and like, people would maybe disperse after the shooting start, and there can only be mm-hmm. so many peasants at the front of the march like actually managing to mm. kill well they managed to shoot 800 they managed to kill That's 200 so their own citizens right wow so back at the czar's village nicholas and alexandra maintain that you can't just bring 120,000 peasants to the palace and not expect chaos to ensue and sure maybe 120,000 is an overwhelming number but they marched peacefully and they had a completely legitimate petition That was actually something that Alexander had said. Well, if they had brought a real petition, well, they did. (laughs) Um, Like, what? You're going to demand a living wage and an eight-hour workday? That's ridiculous. As as far as we know, the peasants were not given warning to leave. So, as as far as we know, they weren't given warning. It seems like, you know, as far as I have found in my research, the guards opened fire. And even so, if the peasants were breaking some kind of law, then, like... You're free to detain them then. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I could get behind that more than I could them being senselessly killed, essentially in cold blood. You know yeah. what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Yes, yeah. I agree. I agree. So I don't think anyone... I don't see any reason... Right. So there's no reason for a mass killing. There's no reason that couldn't have been avoided. I mean, they really... I, I think the guards really were just overwhelmed with such a large yeah. amount of people and just open fire. Yeah. That's, yeah. Bloody something. You can't do that. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to, like, wrap your head around. (sighs) Damn, that's not good. Yeah. But if that wasn't enough, Nicholas maintained that there wasn't anything wrong with the way that Russia was running. Even though the people had to work over eight-hour workdays, had no access to affordable housing, living wages, or education, he was like, nope, there's no problem, because as far as he and his pride are concerned, he's running the empire, and it's the strongest, best land in all the world. And nothing is wrong with Russia, because it's the Russian empire, and it's perfect, and it's my empire, so there's no problem. You know, Yeah, I- he has a great life, so that's probably a good indication that everything's 
I think we can interpret it as a pride thing. Like, well, it's my country. It's or empire. Mm. Like, it's perfect. I could never run a bad empire because I'm perfect. Right. Yeah. But as I said before, the common people of Russia were no longer on board with the idea that they were going to blindly follow and trust the Tsar as sole autocrat and divine father, representation of God, that kind of thing. That was no longer on the table. Neither was their petition. They were like, oh, you responded to our work and living conditions petition by opening fire on us? Great. So then how about we scratch the petition and instead you can appoint a new government or we'll essentially overthrow the empire altogether. So how about we scrap the original and you can get someone else in power? That's how, you know, we're going to play this. Mm, you lost your chance. Right. So the Russian people now demanded a Duma. So a Duma mm. was an elected legislation that re- represents the people and their needs. Mm-hmm. Until Nicholas would instate it, the people of Russia would strike and riots broke out in the street. People stopped working, but people stopped working. Russia was falling, and Nicholas's advisors mm. were urging him to instate the Duma as a democratic reform to the empire. Nicholas is like, fuck mm. no, I'm not going to change the government. And then his his military advisor shows up and more or less is like, state the Duma man or I'm going to fucking kill you. Because, like, Russia's on the brink of complete, I mean. So they'd rather have Russia survive than their right. personal government And it's not survive. like Nicholas is going to be out of power. It's like the Duma, I think, in addition to the Tsar, that now they kind of have to work it's together. It's like a... Like a parliamentary monarchy. Yeah, yes. Interesting. Um, so... Man, they really should have taken that option. Well, they did. So, oh, right. ultimately, Nicholas is like, fine. Uh, he allows the Duma to be put in power, but he makes a lot of changes um, to, like, specific laws, so that he still has the last word on everything. So he okay. still has power over the Duma. So it's better, but not really... <laughs> Because that's the issue with this whole thing, is that it's the autocracy. So Mm -hmm. he can take advice and counsel, but again, as we said last time, it's up to him as to whether he wants to follow it that day or not. That's the problem. You have one person in power that's making that at, at the end of the day is making all the decisions. And has all the money. Uh, so while revolutionary Russian villagers were protesting and rioting in the streets, there were also rioters at the opposite end of the spectrum. So the Black Hundred was an anti-Semitic pro-Tsar group of counter-rioters who would basically attack anyone openly rioting against Nicholas. And Nicholas, this is so fucked up. And I want to clarify, I didn't know this about him last time. I think we were sympathetic towards him last time and in some ways now i see how like shady he is in a lot of ways after continuing my research um Mm. but as some how this ends for him and his family i i just hope you could like it's fair to say that what happens to this as a and this will hopefully make sense next week how they're overthrown that this is a really really upsetting disturbing thing to happen to a family and to the children um but nicholas has ties to this anti-semitic group um and he's what 
So, like, they support him, but he supports them, supporting him? Yeah, he provides them, he secretly provides them with weapons. So one writing group is not okay, but the other one is just because they happen to support his agenda. So basically, we're going to outlaw one, and we're, like, that's a complete obvious conflict of interest. And I, 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 <laughs> I mean, the inclination to support the people who are supporting you, that makes sense, but I mean... I mean, it's a complete oxymoron because it's these two groups doing the exact same thing. They just yeah. have different beliefs and they're attacking different sets of people. Right? So it doesn't fucking make sense. Yeah. No, it, make, it makes sense if you're Nicholas. Right. I mean, like, it's shitty, but... But outside looking in... It, logically, if if you're gonna outlaw like... rebels... You gotta outlaw all of them. You can't be like, you can't pick and choose. I get you, but it, he's essentially on some level a dictator, so yeah. he literally can pick and yeah, choose. He, yes. I'm not saying that he's right in doing that. I'm just saying, like, yeah, that's a, kind of exactly what I would expect. I think we are agreeing of... with each other in different words. Yes. 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 So now in the mix are the communists. Ever heard of a guy named Lenin? So he's mm-hmm. around by this point. And there are two notable communist groups emerging at this time. So you have the Bolsheviks, those who supported Lenin, and the Mensheviks, Mm -hmm. those who didn't. I remember that from high school history (laughs) class. Yeah. So you have the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. One group supports Lenin, one doesn't. But they're all communists. They're all anti-Tsar. They all want to create a classless society. But Lenin believed that you need, like, a powerful few group of leaders on the front lines to front that revolution, which... Then there's a hierarchy, then we're getting into, I guess, not necessarily getting into class. Um, but I don't know. So around this time, in the early 1900s, there's a battle with these revolutionaries because the Tsar is starting to outlaw rebels and those involved with rebel mm-hmm. causes. So thousands of rebels are killed by Russian soldiers, but Lenin manages to escape to Finland. But something tells me he's going to be back later. Maybe in a future episode? (laughs) Yeah, maybe in two weeks. So put a pin in that. Put a pin in Lenin. (laughs) So ultimately, we can see at this time, Nicholas is really cracking down on revolutionaries, making democratic Mm -hmm. Soviet groups illegal, as long as they're anti-Tsar. And although he keeps the Duma in power, he's, again, he's changed the laws so that he always has more power than them. He has the last word. He makes the final decision. And also, he keeps disassembling and reassembling the Duma every time they piss him off. Just so he can get a group of people that he's okay with. So at first, the Duma demands that the political prisoners be released from prison. So Nicholas is like, great, you're all cut, cancelled. But he knows he has to have the Duma, or else people are going to be fucking pissed. So he's like, fine. He elects it again, just to get another group of people in the mix. Then he dissolves it again for a reason I don't know. So every time he dissolves it, he then gets new people in. Yeah. So then he has a third him. election, second re-election. That's funny. Um, and he's also allowed to have anyone arrested for being a suspected rebel. To put that into perspective, fifteen thousand people were executed between nineteen oh five and nineteen oh six for alleged ties Whoa. to the revolution. In one year. Yeah. Uh. Wow. So, things are obviously not going so hot for Nicholas at the moment, but in 1905, someone new and exciting would enter the picture. 
Is there Rasputin? Gregory Rasputin was a peasant farmer who one day was accused of stealing a horse, which he probably did. Knowing that was an executable <laughs> offense, he goes, hey guys, how about instead of cutting my head off, you let me go out on a pilgrimage and I promise I'll go get my shit together. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Do you think he was stealing a horse to compare its penis with his own? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, dude. Maybe I may- he was definitely stealing something, but now I'm second guessing as to whether or not it was a horse. But I hope it was, just so they could compare so dick sizes. So he's gonna go on a pilgrimage? Yes. Instead of jail? Or instead of execution? Yes. Okay. Funny how things work back Maybe. then. Um, so they're like, great! Sounds awesome. So he sets off. He's from Siberia, and he goes all around the countryside. I'm not sure where. He said that with such attitude. He's from Siberia. Oh, no. I, I, I was just thinking how I didn't include a ton of his backstory. Um, but last podcast on the left does, like, a four-part Rasputin series. Um, so oh. definitely, I mean, that's, I mean, nitty-gritty details into his life. Um, yeah. So he sets off and ultimately becomes involved with cults, um, becomes a man of God, finger quotes, and gains a reputation as a healer and a prophet, and then he manages to join the scammer his way into the highest echelons of the <gasps> Russian government. It's m- insane. That's crazy. I know. I did not know any of that. Yeah, so basically on his pilgrimage, Rasputin discovers that he has found God and he's become a holy man, but his way of worship was a little unorthodox, to say the least. See, Rasputin believed that in order to be absolved of your sins, you had to repent. But in order to repent, you had to sin. And what better way to sin than behaving in a raunchy as fuck manner? You follow? That just sounds like a guy who wants to have a lot of sex. Being like, oh yeah, yeah. I need to have sex for my sins. Correct. So he's traveling around Siberia, (laughs) and he's joining a cult, and he's fucking your daughter, and he's bamboozling himself into the winter fucking palace, and he actually manages to get an audience with the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia. It's fucking madness. How he got to that point, I don't know. So is... Are other people buying this when he's like, yeah, I need to sin for my sins? They're like, "Mm, yeah, that sounds right. That's how he's seducing women. So I think how how that happened was he discovered a cult who had that belief. And then he's like, well, I don't want to be in the cult. I want to be doing my own thing. But I am going to... I want my own cult. Yeah, basically. Like, he wants his own power. He he wants to be a leader, not a follower. So he he takes that viewpoint from that religious group and applies it to himself. But he doesn't stay in the cult. Mm -hmm. He's going to go move on up in the world somehow. How he got... To the Winter Palace, or maybe it was the Imperial Palace. I don't know which one. Wherever Nikki and Alexander were that day. Shouldn't have more than one. Th- but you know what? Do. The peasants have a point, because this guy has so many palaces, you can't even remember which one I can't one even which. pin down where they are at a given moment. So, um, yeah. How he gets to the point of getting an audience with them, I'm not sure. I mean, he must have really made some connections. He, I mean, <laughs> he was a... Like a scrummy little dude, but he was very charming and mm. manipulative. He had these eyes. If you look up a picture of him, it almost looks like he's blind. His eyes are so pale and glassy. Are you looking it up? It's No, I'm just oh. taking notes. It's almost creepy. So he's able to, like, seduce, you know, charm, manipulate. So on his journey of being a holy man, a healer, a prophet, he gets to... St. Petersburg. Have you heard? 
You know what the best... What was that? I don't know. You know what the best song in that movie is? What? In the dark of the night, dun 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 I wanted to play that song when I introduced Rasputin, but copyright. But mm, So you just sing it instead. Great. Google YouTube the song In the Dark of the Night from Anastasia, and it's Rasputin's big solo, and it's fucking amazing. What were we saying? Oh, St. Petersburg. Yeah. So, again, I don't really know or remember how he gets a meeting with uh, the Tsar and the Tsarina, but... That was the hard part. God know how he did it, but he did. But once he was in, he was in. So what secured his spot in St. Petersburg? Alexei. Oh, So yeah, we talked yeah, about yeah, Alexei. Yeah, He's very sick all the time. We mentioned last time, and I, I want to stress it again just as a reminder that one really minor injury, not even an injury, something that we wouldn't even think of as an injury, but one bump or scrape or whatever could cause him to be bedridden for days or weeks on end. He just has to wait until, like, he gets a paper gut. He just has to wait until it stops bleeding. He's in pain all the time. Um, I wonder if they got paper guts back then. Probably. They had paper. Probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, But anyway, somehow, whenever Rasputin was around, Alexei's symptoms actually improved and his pain went away. So how did Rasputin manage this? The honest answer is bone chilling. No one knows for sure to this day how he managed to keep Alexei's symptoms in check and actually improve them. He, we'll get into this um, later in the episode, he brings him back from like the brink of death at one point. It's crazy. It's crazy that he was able to get that close though for them Mm -hmm. to... Well, Alexandra's so desperate to take care of him. Like she's already opened her doors to all these prophets and magical people and men of God and blah, blah, blah. So she's probably willing to listen to whoever can be like, oh yeah, I can help him. So he could have just been really, really good with young kids. You know how some people can get like a baby to stop crying and that's like their hidden talent? When a kid falls off a bike, they're like, you're fine. You're mm-hmm. fine. And then the kid believes Right. Him. Could have been a situation like that. Could have been his mm-hmm. eyes. So some people believe that his really freaky eyes, he had some sort of ability to like hypnotize people. Like the snake from the jungle Thank book. Thank you, yes. One theory that last podcast on the left had that I thought was super interesting, this is crazy, that it's possible that he knew the aspirin that Alexei was being given was a blood thinner and would actually make his condition worse. So maybe Rasputin was able to, somehow he knew that and was able to secretly control the medication that Alexei was being given. Interesting. Or... Maybe he had some mystical healing abilities for real. Or maybe it was really, really dumb fucking luck one yeah. time after the next. Again, that's crazy. no one knows for sure to this day. But Rasputin was in, and if it wasn't for Alexei, it was for the way he charmed the Tsar and Tsarina. He was just mm. informal enough with them that it was cute and enticing and endearing, and they absolutely fell in love with him. That's so slimy. I know. It's really gross. He's yucky. So, a bunch of women around St. Petersburg fell in love with him, too. So, Rasputin gains this reputation as the quirky, body, inappropriate priest that was working for the royal family. Ew, he's like Tartuffe. 
Oh, he is. Oh, my God. Sorry, that's a wrong replay. So he's continuing to seduce young women and bragging about how much the royal family adores him, but he's also gaining some skeptics and even some enemies. Alexander was particularly close to Rasputin. We've seen how much she's worried about her son and that she was particularly desperate to heal and protect Alexei. But in 1911, letters from the royal family to Rasputin were leaked to the public, probably due to some negligence on Rasputin's part, and Alexandra's mm-hmm. letters were particularly striking. Saucy? Well, one can interpret them as a desperate mother writing fondly to the man who had saved her son. And one could mm-hmm. also interpret them as a little something extra. That's why the song goes, Rasputin, the Russian queen. Yeah, so phrases yeah. like, I kiss you warmly, and I love and believe in you. Oh, that's very platonic. I would never I would never say to Billy, I kiss you warmly. Yeah. So these could be totally platonic in like a relationship between a worshipper and a priest. That's just how people talked. Um some your fondest love, Margaret. Some people did not interpret it that way though. Mm. Even though Alexander was like, no, it's totally platonic. Like it's it's not like that. But the damage was done, people were gossiping, it was a huge scandal, and out emerged the rumors that the Tsarina and the Meiji Rasputin were fucking. So the royal family could not have this. Nicholas was pissed, Alexandra was pissed too. So ultimately, they told Rasputin to back off. He had to go back to Siberia. He's from Siberia. He's from Siberia. <laughs> but ultimately, all was well, and uh, because he'd already worked his magic and Alexei was doing great. He's doing okay. Uh, that is until 1912, the year the Titanic sunk. Wow, you don't think of those as happening at the same time. Crazy, right? This seems older. You think of this as being way old. I yeah. was just thinking that. Whoa. <sighs> so, Carly, I, oh. I'm just thinking so hard about the pizza that's in my living room right now. I really can't even barely concentrate. You can go on get one. <laughs> no, just go. Okay, on. I'm almost done. Tell me about Alexei. So, uh, while on vacation, Alexei once more came down with overwhelming symptoms of pain, and this time they thought he'd die. It seemed to come out of nowhere. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but we do know it started in a carriage ride. So he's riding in a carriage, and he starts to hurt, and then every bump in the road makes it worse and worse until it gets really, really fucking bad. And this time they thought he was, like, on his deathbed. Sorry, is the pain... In relation to internal bleeding, or is it just, like, another symptom of the disease is just, oh, like, Oh, he's probably pain. not internally bleeding, because then he would definitely die. It's probably just a symptom So it's of just, pain. like, he just has pain all yeah. the time, pretty yeah. much. Okay. So, Alexei himself even asks his mom, When I am dead, will it not hurt anymore, mama? Oh, that's so, so sad. sad. Oh, my God. How old is he? Oh, fuck, 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 fuck. Fuck. That's so Between sad. seven and ten. Ah, uh, yes. He's I don't remember. Five and he 17. 1905? This is 1912? I'm so sorry. I put you on the spot. Maybe about seven? Mm, that's really, really, really sad. I know. So everyone is totally beside themselves, but as always, Alexandra is particularly proactive when it comes to her son. So despite what has happened with, Rasp- <laughs> with Rasputin, in my notes, uh, there's a typo. It says Rasputin. 
So despite what happened with Rasput and the letter scandal, she telegrams him in Siberia to let him know what's going on with Alexei because he's the only one that can ever seem to help him. And Rasputin writes back and informs her, your son is going to be just fine. Just don't let the doctors bother him too much. So this is where... That makes it seem like it is Yeah, so this is where that theory really comes into play because one could interpret this as, his, as him somehow knowing he needed to not be extremely medicated and given any blood thinners. And that he could have kept that information to himself so he could appear as the divine healer. <sighs> but sure enough, within a few days... Alexei sees a miraculous improvement and pulls through. So Rasputin's officially back in the good graces of the royal family, and he also fully understands the power he has over these people. Like, Alexander believes he'd consulted with God himself to save the young future czar, and she would never make the mistake again of letting him go. So just as a reminder, Alexei's condition was a tightly held secret, but people knew that something was wrong with him. I don't think I knew that. I mentioned it last time, but maybe I brushed over it. So, like, some of, like, their servants don't even know. But they, but everyone knows something's up because sometimes in, like, royal events and stuff, he has to be carried in. Like, sometimes he can't walk on his own. Hemophilia is, like, they know what it right. is, though, right? It's not, like, medically misunderstood at the time. It's just they're keeping it right. secret. But, I mean, but they could probably yeah. guess. I mean, because so many royal people have it. They would probably guess it's hemophilia. Even if they couldn't yeah. guess it, they know that he's very sick. Like, something is very wrong with him because sometimes he can't even walk on his own. And that's mm-hmm. really, like, discouraging when he's the future czar. Um, so, yeah. They know something's wrong with him. Yeah. So, even so, in the summer of 1914, things were looking up. Spoiler alert, for, like, two seconds, things are okay. The family was vacationing on a boat, probably a yacht, off the coast of Finland. Now, here's a fun fact. Uh, Alexandra's five very different, uh, Alexandra's five very difficult and strenuous pregnancies had actually done a number on her health. So she had developed really terrible back problems and she couldn't move around as much anymore. So she had to stay on the boat a lot while the rest of her family would play on the beaches and in the water. Mm. Uh, Still, back problems and potential civil war considered, things were generally okay right now. That is, until in June 1914, they learn that Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary has been assassinated. Damn. This was the last thing that Russia needed. They're already on the brink of civil war. There is active revolution happening all over the empire. There has been for like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eight years. That's a long time. And now comes the... So, Bloody Sunday happened eight years ago at this point. Wow. So, they're doing shit for, like, a long time. Things are not going good consistently. And now mm. comes the event that would launch in motion World War One. Wow. You don't think... It's crazy how, like, I know that this is happening in 1914, and I know that World War One happened in 1914, but you kind of think of separate historical events as separate. Right. I think you... I feel like... I kind of forgot that they were going to interact. I feel like when you think of World War One, at least for me... I mean, I'm sure everyone's different, but I guess the way I learned of it in high school, I think of, like, Austria-Hungary, Germany, the U.S., England, France. Um, I don't know. I think I think about Franz Ferdinand I, and um, trenches. Yeah. That's basically what I what comes to mm-hmm. mind. But it's another one where World War One seems more recent than the Romanovs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
So for some context, and I'm not going to be super thorough because World War One is extremely complicated and complex and I don't want to mess anything up, uh, but I do want to provide yeah. some context for our purposes. Austria-Hungary blamed Serbia for the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. And so that starts, like, then war is brewing there because of that. So Serbia turns to Russia for help because they're allies. Okay. However, Germany, Zarina Alexandra's home company, company mm. Alexandra's home country has has a treaty with Austria Hungary at this time. So Russia but so Russia and Serbia so Russia and Serbia are allies, but so are Germany and Austria Hungary. So Russia and Serbia are up against Ger- the Germans and the Austria Hungarians. Hungarians? Hungarians? Hungarians. Thank you. So yeah, there's that situation. On July 28th, 1914, I believe. Austria-Hungary begins to invade Belgrade, Serbia, so in retaliation, Nicholas dispatches an army to the border of Austria and Russia. Now that Rasputin was back in their good graces, Nicholas writes to him to let them know that they were officially on the defensive against against Austria. But Mm -hmm. Rasputin writes back, no, 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 this is the single last thing you need right now. You cannot get involved in a war right now, or else we're going to be fucked. We have our own shit to deal with. So... Nicholas kind of considers dispatching that army for a little bit, but ultimately his decision wasn't going to matter because on August 1st, 1914, Nicholas receives a letter. The letter informs him that Germany had declared war on Russia. And that's where we're leaving off this week. Ooh. It's time for World War One. And a civil war on the side. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I really like that. Thank you. Not civil war, just your jingle. Damn. Did I do good? Yes. What about an hour? I like that. I like that Rasputin's involved now. Yeah, he's fun. And the duck of the night. This story kind of really has it all. Yeah. You've got like creepy mystical priest, sad child with a horrible disease. Peasants. Love. Yeah. Communism. Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to try and figure this up. What the fuck? Finish this up next week. I want to provide enough context about the war, obviously, what's going on with Russia, but I I can't do a deep dive into World War I, obviously. Um, No, that's its own thing. Yeah. There is a podcast on that, um, and this was actually recommended on... Last podcast on the left's series on Rasputin. Um, Blueprint for Armageddon Mm. by Hardcore History. It is a five-part series spanning 20 hours of content about World War I. And it's so complicated and complex, like, I can't wrap my head around all of it. But, yeah, it's insane. Is it is it lad pa- the, the last podcast on the left that's in Dublin right now? They were in Dublin a few days ago, yeah. Oh, okay. I was cool. so jealous. You could have gone to see them, but you don't listen to them. I have three dolls. <laughs> that was me being Patrick. Yeah, I get it. I have three dollars. Anything else? No. Did I do a good job? Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm good. Am I yes, good? Tell me I'm I love good. it. I okay. love the romance. You- Carly, you're good. Everybody validate Carly. <laughs> Such a good story. Yeah, I love it. I'm intrigued, and I can't wait for more. Thanks. I like how tongue-tied you're getting there. Yeah, because I've been talking for an hour. Okay. 
Um, anything beep, else? Boop, beep, beep, boop, beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop, beep. In the dark of the night. In the dark of the night. In the dark of the night. Da, 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 da. Carly, you can't put this in the podcast. You cannot I, put this why? in the podcast. People are going to be like, ugh, she's so annoying. I, I liked it. Okay, you can put it in if you want to. Okay. Um, I have nothing more to add. This I thought you were going to say, I have nothing more to say to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically. Not forever, just for right now. I have nothing more to say to you. Thanks, Megan. Love you too. Um, sorry if I'm very low energy today, guys. But I was just thoroughly enjoying listening. And didn't really feel a need to add I did good. she was doing such a good yeah. job. Okay. Have a great week. Thanks. Happy Monday if you're listening on the day it's released. Boop, 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 boop. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, Carly here, and we wanted to thank you for listening to Sisterly History Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed talking about it and sharing it with you. If you don't mind, we'd really appreciate it if you'd rate, review, and subscribe as it makes our day, but it also really helps us out. You can email us at sisterlyhistorymysteries at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at sisterlypodcast. <laughs>